Well, we have been walking through uh, the updated mission statement for our church the past five weeks, and today is the final sermon in that series where we look at the final uh, part of the mission statement itself. And so uh, to uh, help us understand this teaching, we're going to be in John chapter 13, uh, looking at verses 34 and 35, and that can be found on page number 1,675 of the Pew Bibles. Again, that's John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. I hear the word of the Lord. John, uh, Jesus' beloved disciple, writes to the church and gives us Jesus' words where he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us with self-authenticating authority. That merely by your words, God... The infinite, eternal, unchangeable, powerful, omnipotent God is represented to us. So we pray, God, that you would move our hearts, that we might believe and receive your word in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jonathan Jarks is a sports writer for uh, The Ringer. Um, He also hosts a very popular podcast called The Ringer NBA Show. Uh, Some of you may know who Jonathan is. Uh, He's 33 years old. Uh, He's married with a two-year-old son. And he was uh, last year diagnosed with terminal cancer. Uh, There's no cure. Uh, The kind of cancer that Jonathan has uh, produces little tiny tumors in the bones and the connective tissues and Uh, The cancer is basically found all over his body. They have no idea, you know, what the originating tumor was. Uh, The way you treat this cancer is you fight it back with uh, chemotherapy, except what happens after time is whatever chemo you're using becomes ineffective, and so you have to try a different uh, chemotherapy. Um, And then the same pattern will repeat itself, and so eventually uh, Jonathan will run out of options. And so... This cancer will kill him. It's just a matter of time. Uh, Jonathan recently wrote an article for The Ringer that got a lot of publicity, and I I imagine there's enough sports fans in this room that maybe somebody read uh, the article. But the article was called, Does My Son Know You? And Jonathan watched his own father die of Parkinson's disease. He uh, um, was diagnosed when Jonathan was six, and his father died when Jonathan was 21. And so Jonathan really knows what it's like uh, to grow up without a father which is why he knows what kind of life is waiting for his own son. Uh, But Jonathan's also a Christian. Uh, He became a Christian when he was in college. Uh, He had no religious background prior to that, Um, but in college, God opened up his heart uh, to see the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, and he received that in faith. And in the article, Jonathan talks about uh, joining a church in a small group for the first time uh, after becoming a Christian, and he paints this a picture of just how awkward uh, that whole process is. And 
And there's really no earthly reason why someone would uh, keep uh, bludgeoning themselves with this, these awkward encounters with these people that, that you don't know, other than God, by his spirit, is, is calling you to join a church. And so Jonathan, after being di- diagnosed with cancer, writes about this experience of, uh, of joining a church. And this is what he says. He says, uh, that was seven years ago. Some of those strangers are now some of my closest friends. Isn't that crazy? Some of those strangers are now some of my closest friends. It didn't happen overnight. It took me a long time to feel comfortable. But I was seeing the same people every week, and I was telling them about my problems, and they were telling me about theirs. Do that for long enough, and you become friends. You get to know enough people that way, and it goes from being an obligation to something you look forward to. Making the commitment to come every week is still hard. There are always other things to do. Nor are the people always easy to deal with. (laughs) You may not have a lot in common. You have to search for things to talk about. You can be vulnerable with people and they don't always respond how you would expect. And you certainly won't always agree with them on how they see the world. But I can't imagine not being in a church at this point. Human beings aren't supposed to go through life as faces in a crowd. It's like the song from Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Now, I can't imagine facing death at 33 years old without knowing that my sins are forgiven uh, because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for me and that I'm accepted by God in Christ. I I can't imagine dying apart from Jesus. Um, That would be hard enough. But then I tried to imagine what it would be like to face death at 33 years old with a two-year-old son and a wife and not be part of a church community. And in some ways, that's, that seems even worse. And so Jonathan ends his article um, by asking this question of his friends from church. He says, I've already told some of my friends, when I see you in heaven, there's only one thing I'm going to ask you. Were you good to my son and my wife? Were you there for them? Does my son know you? I don't want Jackson to have the same childhood that I did. I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. Why they always invite him to their houses. Why there are so many of them at his games. I hope he gets sick of them. Friends, this, this is the church. This is what the church does. This is what the church looks like. This is the kind of thing that you can ask your friends if you're dying of the church. And so when Jonathan dies and those men come alongside his son and go to his games and shoot hoops with him and invite him to their houses, the world is going to see it. And the world knows that something supernatural is happening in that place. So here's our outline for this morning. First thing we're going to see is we are to love one another. And then we're going to ask the question, but why just one another? And then finally we're going to ask, what about everybody else? Okay. So we are to love one another. Uh, Our passage comes from John 13. This is the part of... uh, 
John, which is uh, referred to as the upper room discourse. So from John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, Jesus gives his final last teaching to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, uh, the night before he goes to the cross uh, to die for the sins of the world. And one of the things he says to them this night is our passage where he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this commandment is only new in the fact that it summarizes the old. Uh, Before Jesus came, God had given the law uh, with all of its commands and regulations, and now Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's obeyed it perfectly in our place, and on the cross, he suffers the penalty of that, uh, or the penalty that lawbreakers deserve, also in our place. And now, because he's fulfilled the law, his simple new command to us is to love one another just as he has loved us. So it's new because it's more radical and less specific. And it's more radical because, think about it, how has Jesus loved us? He's left glory in heaven to identify with us, to suffer for us, and to die for us. But also, in the context of John 13, if you're familiar with this chapter, Jesus has just finished humbling himself and washing the disciples' feet. In a society of sandals and dirt roads, everybody had dirty feet. And washing feet was a humble, even humiliating task for the lowliest of servants. And yet here is Jesus, their master, the eternal son of God, the one who spoke and the universe came into existence. And here he is on his hands and knees, washing the dirt off the feet of his disciples. And after he washes their feet, he says this to them. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher, And Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And so here Jesus makes it so clear that he's calling his people, his disciples, to serve one another. And so when we get to our passage, this foot-washing scene, and what Jesus taught from it is all part of what he means when he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this doesn't mean specifically that we have to wash each other's feet. I think that was very contextual for that time and that place where they had dirt roads and sandals. But he is calling us to serve each other with the same kind of humility. Just like he set aside the praise and comfort of heaven, we are called to set aside the praise and the comforts of this life so we can humbly love one another. And notice, one another here is not just anyone and everyone out in the world. Because in verse 35, Jesus makes it clear that one another means those who are his disciples. He says, we, his disciples, love one another, and then everyone else out there in the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. So you can see the boundary line here between those who are members inside the church who are Jesus' disciples and everybody else. This pattern, 
actually continues throughout the entire New Testament. There's 59 specific one another commands in the New Testament. Uh, We can't cite them all individually, although I was tempted. But I do want to give you a taste. We're told in the New Testament to love one another, honor one another, build up one another, admonish one another, serve one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, speak the truth and love to one another, teach one another, comfort one another, exhort one another, don't lie to one another, don't bite and devour one another, don't slander one another, just to name a few. And we're given these commands because the New Testament, as we've been saying these last five weeks, just assumes that when we are saved, we become part of the Christian community where God will use our love for one another so that everyone will know that we are his disciples. And the primary way we love one another is by using our individual gifts and callings to serve one another. And the reason we do it is to maintain and to build up this gathering. Which takes us to our second point. Uh, which is the obvious question that follows from the teaching from our first point, which is, why just one another? So our mission statement is this, by God's grace, we glorify Him, proclaim the gospel, grow in our faith, and serve one another. And three weeks ago, uh, we saw that the primary and specific way that every single one of us glorifies God is by gathering in this place as members of His household, citizens of his kingdom, living stones of his temple, where when we come together, his fiery presence dwells with us. And then we saw that as individual Christians, we leave this place to glorify him by abstaining from sinful desires, living such good lives before unbelievers that they glorify him. But we do that as members of Emmanuel Church. We live those lives out there with our Emmanuel jerseys on. And then the next sermon we saw that the primary and most specific way that we proclaim the gospel together as a church is by coming to this place every Sunday and declaring together our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom and supporting the preaching of the gospel that takes place here every week and using our gifts to maintain this work. And also we saw as a church, we are to raise up and send out evangelists and missionaries to proclaim the gospel and to build up the church and to plant other churches. And then in our individual lives, we are to be ready to share the gospel. We're to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks why we have this hope. We're supposed to impress the gospel onto our children Talk about it with our friends and family and neighbors as we sit at home and walk along the road and as we lie down and get up. And then we invite them back here so they can hear the preaching of the gospel and that they might become members of the church community as well. And then last week we said that the primary and most specific way that we grow in our faith is through the means of grace. Again, by coming here to receive more faith by hearing the word of God preached and the assurance and confirmation of our faith through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Every one of us this morning, we don't remember our baptism, but the catechisms and confessions talk about it as if we did. When we see a baptism, we're told that we remember our own baptism. When we see a baptism take place, those waters that wash across 
the head of that child. We remember those waters washed across our head. The same promises were given to us and we were assured of our faith. Because faith just is receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. And faith comes by hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And then, to keep the pattern going, we leave this place. And depending on our individual circumstances and the amount of faith that God has given us, we give ourselves to the various means of discipleship. We put off sin and put off righteousness. We continue to build our knowledge about God through Bible reading, Bible study, and prayer. And all of that is putting kindling and wood on the fire so that when we come back here, as God's temple, in his fiery presence, we might, or he might, make the fire of faith brighter in our hearts through the preaching and sacraments. So this pattern continues then in the final part of our mission statement. The primary and most specific way we serve one another is by using our gifts to maintain and build up this gathering. Because the church is where we glorify him, proclaim the gospel, grow in our faith, and serve one another. The church is the place. This is the place where disciples are made. This is the place we go and baptize and teach them to obey all that Jesus commands. And so by supporting and maintaining this weekly gathering, we are carrying out the Great Commission. Those who God raises up as missionaries and evangelists, they will actually do less serving here in this place. Because the way they serve this place is by going out and inviting others into it. Or going out even farther and planting new churches. Maybe even in India. And then the rest of us use our gifts to serve here. On Sunday morning, we need ushers. We need greeters. But we also need those unofficial greeters who can, who can locate and notice visitors and make them feel welcome. We need people to run sound and PowerPoint to keep the live stream going so that those who are homebound or sick or those who are weak in faith, weary, or away on vacation can still drop in to see what happened here. We need volunteers for the nursery. We need singers, musicians. And when we volunteer for those things, because the church is how God has chosen to bring the gospel to the world, we're both serving one another and carrying out the Great Commission at the same time. And then we need people to maintain the building and the grounds. We need people to give so the lights stay on. We need teachers and volunteers for gyms and cadets and Sunday school and youth group because our children need us as adults to put the logs and the kindling on their fire. Children are incapable of putting logs and kindling on their own fire. So that's why we as adults impress the gospel on them by doing that and serving in these ways. And so I think it's a crying shame when churches tell believers that by doing these things, that they're not carrying out the Great Commission because they absolutely are. Uh, this week, uh, there was a truck parked out in front of the office, and uh, usually when people park in front of the office, they, you know, pull into a parking spot, but this truck was just parked right there. And I thought, huh, I wonder whose truck that is. And so I asked Nate, hey, Nate, whose truck is that? And I'm not going to tell you whose truck it is, but Nate told me whose truck it was. And I said, oh, why is he here? And Nate says, oh, he's here uh, because uh, he's picking up the towels from the kitchen. Uh, because his wife is one of the people at this church who uh, shares that task of washing the towels in the kitchen. And I thought, huh, 
I never in my life once thought that there's towels in the kitchen that need to be washed. And that might seem like the most random, insignificant thing. But do you know how important that is? Can you imagine a funeral or a fundraiser with nasty towels? See, the church is how God is taking the gospel to the rest of the world. And when we serve one another by washing kitchen towels, we are helping to carry out the Great Commission. There are some faithful believers, their lives are so full of things. If you have tons of children, if you're caring for an aging parent, if you're in a season of work that demands hours and hours of your time, and if the only thing you can do to contribute to the ministry of the church is wash some towels, you need to know. You need to know and be encouraged that is carrying out the Great Commission. Now, the obvious pushback here is this. That all sounds very convenient, Pastor Patrick. A bunch of middle-class people get to come to church every Sunday, maybe wash a few towels during the week, and they get to feel like that's all they need to do for Jesus. And you've just let them off the hook. They get to live their comfortable little happy clappy life and go to their comfortable little middle class church service. Meanwhile, people in Ripon, Modesto and Stockton and people all over the world are dying without ever hearing about Jesus. The need is so great, Pastor Patrick. Is going to church and washing some towels and teaching a Sunday school class really enough? Right, that's, that's the message coming back at us, right? Which takes us to our final point. What about everyone else? So how does serving one another by making the ministry of the preaching of the word and the sacraments primary, how does that really contribute to the Great Commission? I can imagine someone saying, that sounds real nice, Pastor Patrick. That sounds like what lazy, itching ears want to hear. How does that help the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized? What about the prisoner? What about the addicted? What about the abused? What about the neglected of our world? Shouldn't you be challenging your people, Pastor Patrick, instead of patting them on the back for just keeping the church meeting going? Shouldn't you be doing more yourself, Pastor Patrick? First, the truth is, this is actually a very real concern. Uh, one writer I read this last week says this. He says, the greatest strength of many traditional churches is also potentially their greatest weakness. The tendency to focus almost exclusively on the nurture of the covenant people within the local church to the exclusion of knowing or even caring about what is happening to the people beyond their walls. So yes, this is a real threat when we emphasize the church and the preaching of the word and the sacraments as the center of what Christians do. But if this is a real threat, what's the solution to this threat? How do we ward this threat off? The same writer goes on and says this. He says, both worship and outreach are tasks given by Christ to the church, and neither should be used to marginalize the other. And then he gives a bunch of examples of what outreach might look like. It doesn't have to look that way, but it could. And then he goes on and he says, none of these outreach activities should get in the way of the word and sacrament ministry at the heart of the church's life. But when the latter... So when the word and sacrament ministry is thriving, the former, the outreach, adorns the gospel with the fragrance of communal discipleship and an outward-looking interest. Isn't that amazing? He says the way that you deal with the introspection of a church 
taking over is by doubling down. (laughs) Preach the gospel more truly. Preach it more authentically. Serve the sacraments. Talk about why we're taking them. And then that will naturally send your people out. What he's saying is that when that is done faithfully, the nurture of God's covenant people here is what propels us out into the world to share the gospel and love our neighbor. So I've made a case over the course of this sermon series that our weekly gatherings are the primary and specific way that we, together, carry out the Great Commission because we come together to glorify Him, proclaim the gospel, grow in our faith, and serve one another. This meeting is what fuels and sparks everything else that happens in our lives. So I want to go back to a thought experiment I gave you guys a couple weeks ago, which was that church in China. Remember, we imagined this church in China, and they're under an oppressive regime, and they can only meet from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. every Sunday, and they do that at great personal risk. And throughout the week, they, they have to stay loosely connected because, you know, they're under threat And so all that they're doing, they're not doing any outreach, really, as a church. But they're coming together, and they're singing a hymn. They're praying together. They're hearing the apostles' teaching. They're partaking of the sacraments. And intuitively, we all knew that's a church. This is because reaching out is not the main characteristic of a church as we, but outreach is what we will do if we're doing what God has called us to do here. This is also what our confessions teach. Listen to the Belgic Confession. Uh, It says, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. Notice, outreach and even evangelism and missions are not included here by the writer of the confession. The only thing listed here that characterizes the true church that doesn't happen specifically in the worship service is church discipline. But all church discipline is is us holding each other accountable for the identity that God gives us here. But then right after that, the Belgian Confession goes on to describe what will result in the life of individual Christians who are part of a true church. It says this. It says, As for those who can belong to the church... We can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of a Christian, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they've received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have forgiveness of sins through faith in him. 
See, what the confession is saying is that as we come together to do what a true church must do, which is hear God's word, partake of the sacraments together, and then hold each other accountable to our identity as Christians, right? When we do that, we are a church. And when we are a church like that, right? Having faith, fleeing from sin, pursuing righteousness, we will love God and our neighbor. The individual members of our church will do that and they will be recognized as Jesus' disciples. See, it's what happens here every Sunday that sends us out into the world with our Emmanuel jerseys on to love one another and to abstain from sin. Listen again to what Jesus calls us to do. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So on the surface, it can seem exclusive and country clubbish for us to pour so much time, energy, and effort into our Sunday gathering where we love one another. But this is the way that God nurtures us, comforts us, loves us, assures us, and prepares us to go out into the world using our individual gifts and callings and circumstances and exercising the faith that we have been given. So here's the question then. What if there is a church of people who are doing no community outreach and all they're doing is gathering on Sunday? I think also we know that even if we could technically call that a church, it still seems like something's missing, huh? And I agree. But first, I would question whether or not that accusation is even true. I would challenge the assumption that just because a church that gathers every Sunday is not doing some kind of visible outreach of the community as a church, that that means they're not doing any outreach at all. You see, I've, I think we've come to expect in our society that what it looks like for a church to do outreach is a group of people wearing Emmanuel Christian Reformed Church t-shirts and going out into the community and doing some kind of work together. And that is definitely a way that a church can do outreach. But honestly, Typically, it's larger churches with greater resources and paid staff, or maybe God has gifted that church with a really motivated volunteer with lots of time and energy. Those are the churches who organize those kind of outreaches because they're just more able to do that kind of thing. And I think God raises up churches to do that. But a smaller church with only a few paid staff members, unless they happen to have volunteers who have a passion for something like that, they're just not able to do that kind of thing. But in our current evangelical climate, combined with the example and the pace set by these larger churches, smaller churches can feel like they're not carrying out the Great Commission if they're not doing that kind of outreach. But second... I also believe that Christians who attend a church like that are doing outreach. It's just their pastor's not getting any credit for it. They're volunteering at the local gospel mission. They're on the boards at nonprofits. They're giving away clothes with other believers at Interfaith every week. They're serving meals to high school students every Thursday. They're making friends with their neighbors and living life together and sharing the gospel slowly over time through real, genuine friendships and hospitality. They're out there in the world encouraging and serving 
And they're also encouraging and serving weaker believers in their church who are struggling with doubt and sin, who might not even have enough faith to come to church every Sunday. And they're picking them up and they're calling them midweek. And they're inviting them and and encouraging them and holding them accountable to be here. They're on their knees praying for friends and family to come to know Jesus or to grow in their faith. They're standing in front of the abortion clinic, speaking the truth and love to young, vulnerable women deceived by our world and encouraging them to keep their child. They're going to work every day as nurses and teachers and farmers and factory workers and stay-at-home moms and retail clerks and linesmen and politicians and police officers and firefighters and business owners and counselors. And they're doing all of that as Christians. They're not just in it for a paycheck. They're in it to be salt and light in the world. I was talking to Pete Dice this week. He was telling me about 60 years of service in high camp. Right? That's just what Christians do. Right? Sure, churches have supported that ministry, but God raised up a man to accomplish something great for his glory and his kingdom. It's through the efforts of individual Christians out in the world being Christians that the world is made a better place and that the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the prisoner and the addicted, the abused, the neglected can all be cared for in some way, either directly through their work or through donating to and volunteering at charities. I'm just picturing it, right, when a, when a Christian police officer comes across a homeless man. Right? That is a, that is a supernatural encounter as opposed to when a godless police officer comes across a homeless man. I was even imagining this week like a, a Christian nurse working in the emergency room, a doctor's hospital, right? It's the county hospital in Modesto. And a homeless man comes in. And because this woman is a Christian nurse, right, she treats him with dignity and respect and with kindness. She treats him as if he's a human being made in the image of God instead of treating him as a bother. And maybe that homeless man encountering a Christian in a supernatural encounter like that is able to experience being loved. Maybe she even prays for him. I mean, who knows, right? It's those simple little things out in the world that Christians do. So I reject the notion that a church as a we has to be seen doing outreach. But according to Jesus, we have to be seen loving one another. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Jesus says the world will know you're my disciples when the world sees you loving one another. And then we're going to see in Matthew next week when we get back into it that that the rest of what we do, we're not supposed to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. (laughs) All the other outreach that we do, that's that's all just what Christians do. This is what Jonathan Jarks has done writing for a secular sports outlet. I doubt many people in upper management at the Ringer are Christians, yet Jonathan was given a platform to use his vocation to share the beauty of the church. And everyone who read that article heard him ask his church to love his wife and son. His bio on the Ringer says this. It says, Jonathan Jarks covers basketball and is a host on the Ringer NBA show. He loves Jesus. And Dallas, in that order, Texas forever. 
Sure, we can quibble with his love for Texas, but we cannot quibble with his love for Jesus. This is what it looks like when Christians reach out to a lost and broken world. Jonathan's also written articles for the Gospel Coalition and Christianity Today, uh, long before ever being diagnosed with cancer. And so when I see a church that doesn't have a reputation for doing outreach to the community, my first assumption is not that they're not doing anything. My first assumption is that they're being fed every week with the word and the sacrament for the work that God has called each of them to do as individual Christians. And I wonder, and, and you don't have to answer this question, but sometimes I wonder, and this is a question for the leadership of our church to wrestle with, but I wonder if we're actually less effective when we tie up people's time and resources by trying to do things as a church than we would be if we freed them up to go out and pursue their passions and their callings. I don't know the answer to that question. But what if a church, though, really isn't doing outreach? What if it's a church like the, the church that that writer warned us about earlier? You know, a church that really has become ingrown and introspective. What if they've really fallen into the country club mentality and they're just comfortable gathering every Sunday to sing familiar songs in a familiar way and just to see each other? And they're not going out into their individual lives doing anything significant for the kingdom. My question is this. Does a church like that or an individual Christian like that, do they primarily need to hear their pastor come along and make them feel guilty for not doing enough? Does that church primarily need to be reminded of all the pain and heartache and sadness in the world and all the people who are going to hell unless they do something? I don't think so. If there really is a church like that, or if there really is some church members that go to church who are like that, it's not that they don't understand the need in the world, it's that they don't understand the gospel. See, they need to be reminded of the drama of creation, the fall of man into sin, God's amazing redemption for them in Christ, and the restoration of all things that are coming. That's what they need to hear about. More than anything, if there is a church like that, they need to be reminded of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin, and then reminded of everything that this holy God has done to save them of their sins. They don't need to be ashamed or be shamed because of everything they should be doing. They need to be reminded of everything that God has done. They don't need to be told to build the kingdom. They need to be told he's building the kingdom and he's giving it to them for nothing. And then, guess what they're going to want to do? Guess what they're going to want to do? I'm confident that when a church is moved by the love of God for them in Christ, they will serve one another to maintain this place because we desperately need this place. We need to be here every week hearing what God has done for us in Christ because if you're like me, we're very weak and very forgetful. And then as we learn to receive and rest in what Christ has done for us, as we see our sin, as we see our sin on display through the preaching of the law, as we see God's love on display overcoming our sin and failure through the preaching of the gospel, we will love and serve one another here because we know how desperately we all need what happens here every week. And God will grow our faith. He'll open our ears to the needs in our own community and across the world. 
And then he will move us as individuals and possibly together as a church if he blesses us with the ability and resources to do those things. He'll do that in a a unique way based on our gifts, our calling, our circumstances, how much faith we have. He'll, He'll enable us to reach out and love our neighbor. So the mission of the church is what we do together, which is, by God's grace, we glorify him, proclaim the gospel, grow in our faith, and serve one another. And then the rest of our Christian lives is what we do with our individual gifts, callings, circumstances, and our measure of faith to love our neighbor and to reach out to this lost and broken world. Now, I'm not going to pray just now. Nate, did you get my extra slides I sent you this morning? No? Okay, that's okay. Uh, This time I'd like to ask the ushers to hand out the pieces of paper that I gave to you, Karen. Uh, So what the ushers are handing out, uh, this here is a, uh, I'm calling it a, well, it's called an Emmanuel Christian Reformed Church Covenant. The way this came about is uh, I presented this to the elders a couple months ago. And I said to them, I said, hey, I'd like people who, um, who take the profession of faith class or the new members class I'd like them to know what they're specifically, what they're covenanting with Emmanuel Church to do and to be. And then I gave this to the elders. And then the elders in their great wisdom <laughs> said to me, how can the new members covenant with us to do and be something that we have never covenanted with each other to do and be? And I said, you know, that's a really great question. And so one of the elders suggested, well, why don't you preach a sermon series on the new mission statement and what it means to be a, a, a uh, you know, what the mission of the church is, and, uh, and then at the end of that sermon series, you can give this to the rest of the church, and they can see what it is that we're covenanting to do and to be as members of Emmanuel Christian Reformed Church. Um, and I thought that was a great idea. And so for you all, I've taken off the signature page, right? Uh, because in many ways, this is what you've already covenanted to do and to be uh, by taking membership vows at the church, um, the uh, form in the gray hymnal for, for new professors says that we promise to do all that we can with the help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen our love and commitment to Christ by sharing faithfully in the life of the church. And so what we've been doing over this last five weeks is just been unpacking what it looks like and what it means to share faithfully in the life of the church. And then what we have here is just basically bullet points unpacking what that means. And so this is going to help us and the new members of our church uh, have a more clear understanding, because I I doubt they're going to go back and listen to all these sermons. I'd love them to, but I doubt it. Um, But this will give them a clear understanding of what it means to be a member here at Emmanuel Christian Reformed Church. And so the preamble I've borrowed from the great hymnal, but it says this. It says, As those who have received God's gracious promises, sealed to us in our baptism, and have been united to Christ and His church, which our baptism signifies... We promise to do all that we can with the help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen our love and commitment to Christ by sharing faithfully in the life of the church, honoring and submitting to its authority, and joining with the people of God and doing the work of the Lord everywhere. Therefore, relying on His grace, we solemnly and joyfully covenant with each other, with each member of Emmanuel CRC. And then the bullet points, you'll recognize most of this from everything we've been saying the last five weeks. The first one is, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, this is what a Christian church is. We are unified. And and so we ought to pray that God would maintain that unity and that he would maintain the peace in this congregation. 
The next one, we will walk together in love as members of a Christian church, exercise attentive care over each other, and faithfully warn and plead with one another as occasion may require. And so there you have just that us holding each other accountable to the identity that God gives us through his word. Um, The next, we will not forsake meeting together or praying for ourselves and others. That comes from Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, where God actually commands us to be in this place every Sunday, gathering with each other. And so here, if somebody becomes a member of Emmanuel Church, they're going to commit that, hey, I'm going to be here every single Sunday. Now, obviously, we can go on vacation, right? There's reasons we have to miss. But for the most part, this is where we should long to be every Sunday. Next, we will seek to raise our children or any child under our care in the training and instruction of the Lord. And by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our family and friends. And here we have the idea of impressing the gospel on our children, talking about it with our friends and family and community as we lie down, as we get up, as we walk along the road, right? Everything we've been saying these last five weeks. Next, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and strive with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Right? This is just what Christians do. Next, we will seek God helping us to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions and remembering that since we have been buried by baptism and raised to new life in Christ, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. Right? So we deny our sinful desires and we go and we live such good lives in front of unbelievers that they will glorify God. Um, Next, we will work together to maintain faithful gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, sacraments, discipline, and doctrines. Again, that's using our gifts to maintain what happens here every single Sunday. Next, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. And so here again, through our giving, we maintain this ministry here. But we also, through our giving, can raise up and send out missionaries and evangelists I, again, would love it if God raised up somebody here that we all know that we could send out as a church. But we can still partner with other Christians out there. Uh, Pete Duma and I went to this uh, meeting on Wednesday from Mission India and heard about what they're doing, taking, planning churches in India. And it was mind-blowing, right? We, it would, long story short, it would cost us $100,000 to send a missionary to India. What they're doing over there, they're raising up indigenous missionaries, and for $2,400 for the whole year, these people are planning churches and sharing the gospel in an unreached people group. And Pete and I were like, Whoo-hoo-hoo. we were so giddy and excited leaving there because we thought this, these people are doing something great. One of the other pastors that was there was like, hey, we keep giving more money to this, this place because I went to India. I saw what they're doing. They're taking our money and they're using it efficiently so that people can come to know Jesus. Huh. And we're like, that sounds great. That's what we all want to do, right? Next, we will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of, his, of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Again, so if we agree that being here every Sunday morning is the way that we carry out, the main primary way that we as a church carry out the Great Commission, if we ever departed from this church, well, naturally, we would know that we need to immediately get connected as a member of another church. And then when the elders are helping in that process and they find out, oh, we're moving away. Okay, great. Where are you moving to? Well, can we help you find a church there? And and we're calling to check in on you. It's not like we're like, we're just doing our jobs. We we, want to know, like, is your soul being cared for? It's no longer being cared for here. We want to make sure to pass you off to a church where you can know and be known and where the gospel is preached, the sacraments are taken, and you can continue and the callings uh, that God has given you. 
And then finally, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. So here's the ask. If you... If, you, if your soul resonates with this and you want to just affirm it as a symbolic act, sign this thing, pile it up on the table back there, take it home, sign it, bring it back, put it in the offering. If, if you only have one, you and your spouse can each sign it. But if, if you're saying like, look, I, I believe in the mission of Emmanuel Church and I want to contribute week in and week out my gifts and my callings so I can be raised up, fed, transformed, so I can go out there and use my gifts and callings for his kingdom and his glory, and my entire life can just be wrapped up in whatever it is that God's calling me to do, and I can learn to walk away from sin, and I can learn to embrace all of his grace and his mercy and his kindness to me. Oh, because that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. And if you want to be a part of that, sign this, leave it with us, and then, maybe don't even leave with us. Just sign it and keep it. So you can, actually, you know what? We'll send this out in the email next week. I'll figure it out. Nate's gone, but I'll figure it out. Maybe it'll be when Nate gets back. Anyway, I think I've said everything I need to say. I love you guys. Being here for less than a year and getting to know you, it's been so sweet and so wonderful. I've enjoyed every conversation, every coffee and cake, every visit. You are a dear and sweet church, and um, it's a pleasure and a joy uh, to be your pastor. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we are so grateful for the mission that you've given us together as a church. We're so thankful for the individual gifts and callings that you've given us as individual believers, that we might go out and do really great things for you, even if they seem very ordinary. And very simple, because we know, God, that you are at work building your kingdom and that you're giving it to us. And we're so grateful. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.